Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Does anybody need a handout? So, good evening. What a beautiful evening. I mean, was anybody in the, outside in the sun today? What, what an incredible day today. It's amazing. I just, I just came home from Edmonton. So, so having the sunshine this afternoon was just, just fantastic. So there are a few faces who, who, who weren't here the past couple of weeks, so welcome. Um, the way things work on Tuesday nights is we have a period of sitting meditation, and then usually I give a talk. And we tend to pick themes for the talks. So we just finished how many months on the Yoga Sutra? How many? Five months on Chapter 3 of the Yoga Sutra. <laughs> When finally somebody said, you, you've got to just wrap this up. <laughs> when I say I'm going to go line by line, everyone gets really excited. You know, we're really going to study in depth. And then after a few months, it's like, it's like in the General Assembly. People are, you know, wrap it up. <laughs> um, so anyways, this is the third week where we're studying a fascicle by somebody named Dogen. Um, Dogen lived in the 13th century in Japan. Um, I spent the first week going through his biography and some of the sort of key teachings of Dogen. And then last week I introduced this essay that we're going to be exploring together and handed it out. I know some of you took it home. Um, and so today I thought we could just go a little, a little deeper uh, into it. And I'll try and recap a little bit, um, just because Mike wasn't here. This is all for you. <laughs> um, so it's 1240, so it's almost halfway through the 13th century. Dogen comes back from China. He was born in Kyoto. He gets back to Kyoto, and he's really unhappy with the state of affairs in Kyoto. Um, too much fragmentation, um, too much power in the imperial government. Um, people are really tense. 
and um, factions of the city are not getting along. And so Dogen doesn't want to get involved. He's 40 years old, and he's doing his best writing, which is very rare, because uh, somebody who's a Buddhist practitioner coming from China to Japan generally would not be someone who wrote a lot. You don't find in those centuries people writing about practice. You find a lot of poetry and a lot of calligraphy, and you find um, Chan and Zen kind of moving through the worlds of literature, but you don't find a Zen teacher writing about Zen practice. Um, So he's in a very prolific era. Uh, He's just turned 40. He starts a monastery just outside Kyoto. He wants to have nothing to do with city life. And as I mentioned last week, um, he recommends in one letter to another teacher um, that you shouldn't have anything to do with anybody involved in politics. <laughs> so, so this is you know, what's going on for him. Um, and so he goes out into the mountains, and he's very inspired by a poet um, whose poetry I read last week. Um, who writes about mountains and rivers and writes about how rivers are the broad tongue of the Buddha. And all night, they're speaking all the sutras. And inspired by that, um, uh, the poem ends saying that the rivers are the Buddha's tongue. And then the poet says at the end, how could I ever express this? Which I think we all know when you kind of have this experience of really waking up to some moment in your life, it also almost always comes with a sense, how am I going to express it? And then we tend to keep it private. And this is one of the things that's interesting about Zen practice in the many streams of of Buddhism, is that um, Zen practice has always really valued not just private awakening, but the expression of it. And that's why I think nowadays so many of us associate Zen with the arts, right? Because Zen also becomes a form of aesthetics. Because it doesn't stop just at having a personal, private awakening. The next step is, well, now how do you express this? And that's why the koan tradition is so powerful in Zen practice, where um, people's practice is not just sitting on their cushion, but people's practice is having dialogue with their teachers. And this is where Zen koans come from, which are um, uh, stories of dialogue, uh, uh, where someone's awakening is getting tested, which is really lovely. Um, So he calls his essay the Mountains and Rivers Sutra. And this is a play on the idea of a sutra. Because usually a sutra is a philosophical treatise on a subject. But here he's flipped it around and saying, by, by saying that the mountains and rivers are of the sutra. So if you really pay attention to mountains and you really pay attention to water, that's the sutra. Right? It's not like we're studying a sutra about mountains and rivers. Sun salutations are like this. Uh, these days, there's this common interpretation of Surya Namaskara, uh, sun salutation, as a salutation to the sun. But etymologically, and also internally, a sun salutation is actually a salutation of the sun. So all these nowadays, they call them sun salutes. You heard this? Don't ever say that around me. 
Um, so when, when, when you're inhaling and you're spreading the fingers and releasing the palate, you're not, so, who salutes the sun like this? <laughs> you know? But actually it's considered that the moon is actually in the base of the skull, which is opening right at the uvula, if you study the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And the sun is your pelvic floor. So when you're inhaling and then you start exhaling, you spread your fingers, which are just rays of the sun. I like to open my mouth in the sun. When no one's looking, I'm just like... (laughs) (laughs) And you become the sun. And the sun is something like, I think the first star away from the sun is something like 10,000 light years. So you have to reach really far. Like, think about that, right? When you're exhaling, you just, you have to go for it. (laughs) 10,000 light years. So this is the same kind of idea, that mountains and rivers, you cannot write a sutra about mountains and rivers. But mountains and rivers are the sutra. They're the Buddha's body. They're your body. Mountains and rivers are actually sutured to your body. They're not separate from you. Just like we were saying last week, your teeth are really hard. And they're mountains. And your gums are more like water. They're fluid. Oh, and saliva. Right? It's a little bit like when you meditate, you become very interested in the quality of your breathing. Obsessed with it, actually. If you ever go to a yoga teacher dinner party, no one drinks anything. Well, in Santa Monica, they drink, like, green drinks. But everywhere else, they just breathe together. No one talks. They just inhale and exhale. Once in a while, someone will go... (laughs) You know, but mostly... They're just breathing together. And they really, and someone will say, you know, so it's like wine connoisseurship. Someone, they'll like compare each other's breathing, you know. Oh, I noticed that there's a little bit of Florida in your breath. And some so, anyways. Um, and you become really close to the breath, where the closer and closer you become to the breath, the more impersonal the breath is. So at first you think, oh, it's my breathing. But then as you become really in tune with your breathing, it doesn't feel personal anymore. It's just a wind, vaya. Um, so we, could, we should have like breath sutra text that we'll do next. Um, and then Dogen says, and then you have these mountains everywhere. And the mountains, in Dogen's perspective, are not really mountains. Mountains are more like masks. Mountains things aren't really what you think they are. Just like he says, a stone woman gives birth to a child at night. So a stone woman might be a metaphor for somebody who can't uh, bear a child. But there at night, the stone woman bears a child. So he's trying to get you out of conventional thinking to say that mountains are masks for infinity. Mountains represent timeless time. And behind the mask that you call a mountain is just timelessness. Just like in meditation practice, when the mind starts getting quiet and you're not picking and choosing and deciding about everything and moving things around and trying to fix your emotional life, usually that's the first 10 years of meditation is trying to fix your emotions until you realize that's also a kind of controlling. And then we drop under that And the experience of it is quite timeless, right? 
or what Dogen calls beginningless time. There's a sense that you're not in or outside of time. It's just timeless. You, you can't say how long you're there for until the bell rings. Um, so he's saying mountains are like this. They express time, just like your body expresses time. And, uh, and then Dogen says, and you, can, and you can read along here, mountains do not lack the characteristics of mountains. Therefore, they always abide in ease and always walk. Examine in detail the characteristic of mountains walking. So usually we think mountains are the opposite of walking. They're solid. And what we explored last week was how mountains, when you really get close to them, or when you get really far away from them, are not just these solid things. Mountains are actually walking. And if you pay attention to mountains, just like you pay attention to your life, you'll notice that everything you think is solid is walking. And Dogen's saying, and if you don't understand mountains walking, then you don't see your life. Because what he's saying is, is we all experience our life as having these parts of our life that are, are structures that are embedded in this thing called time. But actually, nothing's really like that. And if you look closely at anything in your life that you think is permanent, then you'll see that it's actually walking. And then I stopped there last night, and I suggested that maybe this could be homework for everybody. Well, we went into, we went into groups, and we had some dialogue, and then everybody went home with this homework, and the homework was to, to look at your life, in any place where you see something as a structure that seems really solid, like a mountain is solid, to see if you can see that as walking. So did anybody do this? Home, homework? So, so, Stuart, what, what did you notice? Um, yeah, I noticed <clears throat> that the, some of the practical things in my life and... and, and Certain things were were a lot easier to kind of not be fixed to the ideas of them. Mm-hmm. And then I found this particular week there's been some struggles and the emotional stuff was um some of it was just excuse me, but fucking it was a challenge. Mm-hmm. Like a real challenge. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So I mean <laughs> It's got to be like a daily thing. Hmm. I, and I'll be walking down the street going and walking. Oh, I'm actually walking. Yeah. 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 Hmm. yeah. Thank you. Did you have your hand? Sure. Yeah. I brought that phrase, mountains walking, into uh, some challenging uh, situations, and it had the effect of uh, uh, the phrase, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and around that, just freeing up the attention, I could I could hear the wind through the trees suddenly. Mm-hmm. I, I could see, you know, strategies that I was going to be grasping at for handling the situation. I could see them, I kind of let them go and they kind of fluttered off. Yeah. And, uh, 
it just brought more more attention to feeling what I was feeling mm-hmm. and more sort of ease with the, the discomfort. Mm-hmm. Somebody else. You played with a dog. I was playing with my dog. Uh huh. And um, and and it was it was weird because I actually felt first of all like a three year old at some point, which I never I, I lost that feeling. I think I realized I lost that lost that feeling um, of being in the game uh-huh. and feeling another being being there yeah. and and kind of feeling my dog sort of rushing past me. Yeah. At the same time, for a moment, I almost felt like I was confused whether it was me or her. Uh-huh. And, and that was this opening moment of me going one direction and her doing go in another direction, and yet it was all me. Uh-huh. And, and that reminded me of <coughs> yeah. mountains walking. Yeah, the whole thing's walking. It's just walking. Yeah. Outside. Uh-huh. Yeah. And inside. Yeah. Anybody else? I think we're going to have to carry this homework another few weeks because there's not so much feedback. Maybe I'll mark it. It gives me the same kind of like feeling, like mountains. It, it gives me the same feeling as when we talk about like not knowing mm-hmm. and how to practice not knowing. Mm-hmm. And I always think about, about Bernie and, and, and the things that he says about it. And, like, mm-hmm. just that, just that like, immediate re- reaction of, like, but I need to know everything, you know? Yeah. But I really don't have anything more to say than that. Yeah. Just, like, mm-hmm. that it, it feels like... So it's one way of, practice. like, making it permanent. Is yeah. like, I need to know what this is. Yeah. yeah. Stop it from walking. Yeah. Um... I think sometimes when I'm listening to people talk about meditation or giving them feedback or meeting with them, I think one place that's very similar to me where I listen the same way as I would if I was practicing psychotherapy is when you hear somebody talk, you can really hear where people are taking... It's usually where people are suffering, actually, where they have some kind of narrative or some kind of story in their life that's become rigid, that, that they think of as permanent. Like, this person is like that. My mother is just this. My brother is just this. And then they've turned something into a thing. So I think, in a way, mountains walking is actually what we're doing in our psychological lives. And maybe this is what is at the heart of kind of spiritual or religious practice, is to let the practice catch those places where we're trying to make things permanent. And then the practice will give us different techniques, and every spiritual system has different techniques, for being able to re-see or re-present 
that particular situation as something that's walking, as something that's moving. So if I go to the hospital to visit somebody who's in pain, then my interest will be how not to make the pain a fixed thing. How do you open to the pain enough that you can actually feel how the pain changes down your arm and then goes to the sacrum? Right? And we all know as soon as we're in pain, we're like, oh, it's just my arm's in pain. And it's, I'm going to be like this forever, you know. Mm-hmm. Right? And then to see it's not static. Right? It's not static. And then what you're doing is you're, you're seeing the foreground of something and letting it fall into its background. Just like a mountain's background is timeless. Everything's background is infinity. And that's really hard to see because we want to keep a rigid narrative going. Especially like, does anybody here have an enemy? I think I ask this every few weeks and, you know. (laughs) I just asked this in Edmonton, like everyone had an enemy. (laughs) So maybe we don't have someone, we're softer here or something in the city. But um, it's like when you have an enemy, right? It's exactly the same thing, right? You've, You've really created, you've turned them into a thing in time, usually into the past. And then you can't see their redeeming qualities because you won't give them a background. You'll only keep them in a foreground. And then your heart is closed up mm-hmm. at, at some level. So that's another way of thinking about mountains um, walking um, is that you know we're letting things flow through us. Just like we're allowing ourselves to flow through other people's hearts, other people flow through our hearts. So different situations flow through through us. Um, so one of the main teachings I think that Dogen's getting at here is you, you're not practicing to change anything. You don't go changing mountains. And, and this is his flip around of traditional spiritual teaching is that usually we're practicing to get better to change ourselves. And Dogen's saying the only reason why you're practicing is to appreciate yourself. And I think we all need to hear this like every day. That you get on your cushion and you get on your mat and you're doing it not to get enlightened. That for Dogen, getting enlightened is like a preposterous misunderstanding of what we're doing. That we're getting on our mat and we're getting involved in practice to really appreciate our life. Do you need to hear that again? <laughs> we're, 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 we're getting into practice just to appreciate our life. Not to, to get anywhere. And the more we're trying to get something, you know, or some, sometimes we all, I think, especially when we're younger, we get in a spiritual system where there's someone who's like dangling something, priming you. If you just get fourth series, you're going to be really happy. Even though you see them and like they're not happy. <laughs> if they were happy, they wouldn't be dangling fourth series. In um, just to appreciate your life. So um, there's a little story that I came across today that I, I really love. Um, th- this story is actually, now this is very rare because this is a Zen story about a woman. <laughs> so um, they, the women didn't make it into history so well in that tradition. Anyway, she was the first woman in Japan whose enlightenment was certified by a Zen teacher. 
And she also founded the first nunnery in Japan. So this is a big deal. Um, and this comes just after Dogen's life, actually. Her, her Buddhist name is Muchaku. And I think from now on, I'm going to have to consult with Mina before I, I, I speak any of these words. Um, so there's two versions to the story. I'm just going to read one of them. Um, she's a humble servant. Um, she's in, she's, she turns 34. She has a daughter who's just over a year old. It's 1277. And her daughter turns a year and her husband dies. And she can't get over the grief of her husband dying. So she brings up her daughter for a few more years. And then, still a bit of a mess, she decides uh, to let her family take care of her daughter for a while. And she goes to practice at a monastery. Um, That's the first part of the story. Um, She goes to visit a Zen teacher named Buko at this monastery. And she goes, to the, she goes to the Zen master, and I love this, this part, and she says to him, what is Zen? Isn't that so good? Imagine if someone came to you after you've been practicing your whole life. You've been studying Surya Namaskara. And they say, what's Surya Namaskara? Um, the Zen teacher, Buko, says to her, the heart of the one who is asking is Zen. It is not to be got from the words of another. Isn't that beautiful? The heart of the person who's asking, that's Zen. Which is a tricky response, which is basically saying, are you looking outside of your own heart for what you think is Zen? Do you think the Buddha is really on the altar over there? Don't be silly. Because then you're turning the Buddha into a character of the Buddha. Um, it's also like saying people can tell you things, but that's not really going to teach you, right? Like how many of us, it, when you, we really look at our mentors, have really learned from what they've said? Mostly we've learned because of how they are, right? I can think of teachers who are the most clever and interesting teachers that I know, but mostly what I've learned from them hasn't been while they're teaching, It's been usually when they've done something stupid, right? And then you see their character. It's like, oh, so this is how they respond. Um, So here's the final part of the story. It's the eighth lunar month of the following year. So she's been meditating on this question for a while. She goes to the well to draw some water And the bottom of her old bucket, do you know those buckets? They're like bamboo strips held together by another bamboo strip. And the bottom of her bucket breaks and suddenly gives way and all the water falls out of the bottom of the bucket. And at that moment, she's free. Have you had an experience like this? All of a sudden, she's free. So, as is in the tradition, she writes a poem. And this is how the poem goes. In this way and that, I tried to save the old pail. Since the bamboo strip was weakening and about to break, until at last the bottom fell out, no more water in the pail, and no more moon in the water. Isn't that beautiful? No more moon in the water. So 
Have you ever let this happen to you? I remember one time being really angry with my parents and going to visit my uncle, who was my mentor, and he said, let yourself fall apart. I didn't really understand it at the time, but I really remembered this sentence that really stayed with me when I was older. Just like um, there was a child psychologist named Donald Winnicott. I don't know how many of you know, know his work. And one of the things he was famous for was making a distinction when people are doing deep inner work between disintegration and unintegration. And he thought that when someone didn't have um, enough support and they really went deep into their unconscious, they could disintegrate. But people were so, there was so much uh, confusion around disintegration that he came up with this term unintegration to talk about the importance when there's a loving relationship of being able to fall apart. The bottom has to drop out of the, you know, out of the pail. And can you let the bottom drop out of the pail? And then mountains are walking. Right? Water's flowing again. And can you let this happen in your life? This is where resilience comes from. Right? In, in, in you know, modern academic research around leadership and self-organizing systems. If I heard the word leadership one more time, <laughs> can leadership just be out for the next decade? Is that okay? Leadership. We'll just compost it for a while. <laughs> leadership, sun salutes, <laughs> enlightenment, anything else? Do you want to add anything else? Synergy. Synergy. Mindfulness. Co-create. Mindfulness. Co-create. Co-creates the word. <laughs> Can we co-create some space today? Manifest. Manifest. Anyways, where was I? <laughs> what were we talking about? Bamboo, disintegration. Oh, disin- resilience. Yeah. So, resilience. So, you know, we know that one of the ways resilience is measured is whether something can break down and rebuild itself in a new and creative way. But what that means is the thing has to be able to break down. And so, like, for example, computers are really bad examples of resilience. Because the computer breaks down and that's it, you know. Um, But forests are a really good example of resilience. If you've ever been in a forest after a forest fire, I remember this as a kid on a long canoe trip going to this area in northern Algonquin Park where there had been a forest fire a few years before. And then you walk into this field that's open, there's no trees, and the most beautiful wildflowers you've ever seen. But that can only happen when you let the pail drop and, ha- and have the trust to really do that. And, and it's so interesting in meditation practice, I think, for the first few years of practice, usually people, what they struggle with the most is anxiety. Because we're so used to being in the level up here that that part of us that's used to being here really gets anxious about being here. And yet, um, there's a part of us that's the stream that knows that it can flow down here, and it's okay. 
and the, and coming here every Tuesday night as an example and seeing other people practicing as examples, like, oh, okay, I, I can go deeper. And how do you go deeper? You you let the pale uh, fall apart. So um, basically what Dogen is saying here is that everything's walking all the time. Everything's walking. So let, let's hear how Dogen says it now because you've heard mostly my commentary tonight. Um, do you want to read? Sure. Nice and slow? Yeah, sure. The, the, um, mountains walking is just like human walking? Mountains walking is just like human walking. Accordingly, do not doubt mountains walking, even though it does not look the same as human walking. (coughs) The Buddha ancestors' words point to walking. This is fundamental understanding. Penetrate these words. So he's basically saying here, all the Buddha ancestors, so from the time of the Buddha, all the way until, you know, so for... I don't know, what, 1,400, 1,500 years. He's saying all those Buddha ancestors, if you really understand all their teachings, they're all pointing towards walking. Every, every Buddhist teacher is pointing towards impermanence. And then he says, but that's not enough. It's such a fundamental teaching that you need to penetrate it. So it's not just like some philosophy. Oh, yeah, everything's walking, man. It'll be the new thing, like, how are you doing? Walking, man. (laughs) He's saying penetrate it, like go further than that. You know this term, when you see the Buddha, kill the Buddha? It's the same thing. When you see the Buddha, you have to go past the Buddha. When you hear a teaching, you have to go past the teaching. When you hear a name, sun salutation, you have to go past the name into things. Keep going, we'll do another paragraph. Because green mountains walk, they are permanent. Although they walk more swiftly than the wind, someone in the mountains does not notice or understand it. In the mountains means the blossoming of the entire world. People outside the mountains do not notice or understand the mountains walking. Those without eyes to see mountains cannot notice, understand, see, or hear this reality. If you doubt mountains walking, you do not know your own walking. It is not that you do not walk, but that you do not know or understand your own walking. Since you do not know your own walking, since you do know, oh, sorry, sorry, since you do know your own walking, you should fully know the green mountains walking. Green mountains are neither sentient nor insentient. You are neither sentient nor insentient. At this moment, you cannot doubt the green mountains walking. So that that last paragraph is what I'm going to talk about next week. But basically, he's challenging this idea that in uh, many spiritual traditions, things are sentient or insentient. So sentient means it has at least one sense organ. So in materialism, a mountain's not walking because it doesn't, I mean, a mountain isn't sentient because it doesn't have sense organs. But Dogen is saying sentient and insent are just ridiculous categories. 
you can learn from the sentient and from the insentient. In fact, if you look closely at what makes up the sentient, it's actually insentient. So I'm alive because I'm sentient, but that's not going far enough. If you look at what makes me sentient, it's the insentient. So this is what we'll explore next week. But but just before that, when Dogen says um, uh, someone in the mountains does not notice or understand it, he's saying that in a positive way. So what he's saying, when you're to- and, I, and you have heard me say this many times, but when you're totally in your life, and this is where I get this notion from this essay, when you're totally in your life, you don't see it. When I'm sitting on this cushion, I can't see it. And then as soon as you're a little outside of your experience, then you see it, and then you know about it. And anybody here who makes art knows this, right? Whenever you're in kind of a creative flow of doing something, you're so in it, you don't see it. There's no separation. Just like someone fully in the mountains doesn't see the mountains. They're just walking and... You know, whatever you do in the mountains. But you don't see yourself in the mountains. Or some of us really are suffering a lot when you're out in the mountains. You're going, this is so great, we're out in the mountains, you know. I remember this with my son. Um, we were taking a taxi home. We were taking a taxi from, we had spent some time in Montreal. And we were taking a taxi to the airport. And he had just gotten something. I don't know if it was a comic book or something. And then, so I kept saying to him in the taxi, I'm like, wasn't that a great trip? (laughs) Didn't you have so much fun? And he's just like talking about the comic book. And then I realized, you know, I'm sitting there in the taxi reflecting on this trip and making this big statement about it, like, wasn't it a great trip? But actually, the question was so leading because it wasn't saying, how was the trip? saying, wasn't that a great trip? As if you could take this section of time, parcel it off, and say, wasn't that great? And he just wouldn't respond. He was like Master Buko, right? And I was the nun. So anyways, when you're fully in your experience, you don't see it. When you're totally in the mountains, you don't see it. This is what Dogen's saying. It's really beautiful. Really beautiful what he's saying. Mountains walking. So, what do you hear? Any questions or comments? Christiane. I have a question about the moon. The, the moon, you can't see it in the water. Mm. Mm-hmm. What do you think? <laughs> well, I see the moon often as, as some sort of light or illumination or something mm-hmm. of knowing mm-hmm. that's helpful, but then I feel like we've often talked a lot about like the other side of the moon that's dark. And so sometimes if, if we hold that too tightly, then we can't see the dark side. Uh-huh. And so maybe that releases it so you can see another side of the moon. Sure, yeah. And I was also thinking about the, the stone woman mm-hmm. and like something about how that connects to resilience and that it's generative in a way. Or hmm. I don't know. 
Yeah. I mean, the stone woman could also be the mountain. The mountain could be a stone woman. But, and then she gives birth. And she gives birth. And we were talking so much last week about the wearing down of the mountain as a Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's something hopeful to me in like that it's not just wearing down. Uh-huh. Like even though I see that as a Yeah. Yeah, that causes me more like. Oh yeah, you have to have a bit of hope because otherwise, like, you wake up in the morning like I'm just wearing down. <laughs> Does anybody get like that? Just wearing down, you know? Or you look in the mirror, you're like God, you know? Just wearing down. <laughs> No amount of body blitz is going to help this. You know. um, but the part about the moon, the, the way I heard the moon, and, and of course this is all open for interpretation, but the way I heard the moon was, it was almost like you know she was walking like this, seeing the moon in the water, which you could interpret as kind of a poetic thing. But I also thought that you know when the bottom breaks out, then there's the moon. You're not seeing the moon as a reflection anymore in the water. There's just the moon, as opposed to always seeing things in their reflection. You know. That that's how I heard it, but I think you know there could be different different ways. A- any other interpretations of that that section? Yeah. I thought, of, but I thought of it more as a, when we seeing the reflection of something and seeing someone else's like someone else's interpretation of the world or the moon's reflection mm-hmm. as opposed to actually experiencing it directly. It's, yeah. you know, we always take everybody else's uh-huh. information and everybody else's way of yeah. how we should be, but when everything breaks and you're, you're just uh-huh. you're, you're experiencing everything directly. Uh, the bottom drops out mm-hmm. and then you're not seeing someone else's interpretation. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Somebody else? Carmen. I, I was um, in um, a paleontology um. department of the Royal Ontario Museum this last week. Yeah. And um, there was this, this person that was basically um, explaining um, a particular fossil, which actually is really rare and it ended up being um, a bacteria, the very first bacteria 500 million years ago when the beginning of this planet just started to form. (laughs) And what was interesting to see was how this bacteria over a period of time actually created a mountain. That was the beginning of what this planet is. Mm -hmm. That was the beginning of where everything comes from. Mm -hmm. And it just occurred to me as I was as I was in that room with her that that everything, absolutely everything that's Mm -hmm. on this planet is a mountain. And we are just an evolved uh, mountain um, that has um, that is related to that bacteria, uh, and uh, it just suddenly sort of felt like there was just so much space, and there was just so much appreciation for what this is, and yeah. who we are. And yeah. 
that we need and that we actually have intelligence to um, decipher that information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One more comment or question before we wrap up. Something really, really intelligent. <laughs> well, I, I had the. Uh, she was talking about how she kept repairing the pail. So, so I had this image, and it's like, that, and there's the issue of uh, you know her feelings because she was, well, she felt so bad about being a widow. Oh. So yeah. it's like she had it all together. Yeah. And and then there's the reflection of the moon, uh -huh. and that's almost like her memory of her. It's interesting that she's pulling the pail up in the well and then the bottom drops out so all the water just goes back into the water. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like Kuan Yin mm -hmm. with her vase. You know? It's a similar kind of image. That's nice. Okay, so... Um, Next week, I'll go through uh, this whole issue of sentient and insentient, which is really interesting. And um, maybe we should do the homework again, because it sounds like some of you were with the dog. <laughs> so um, the homework is, and remind me if I'm not saying it correctly, but I think the homework was, you know, look at things in your life that you see as fixed or permanent and see if you can see them walking really to meditate on that buildings careers bank accounts does anyone in here have a bank account <laughs> um i don't know computer data backup uh systems bowls cups tables chairs floors Apartments, politicians, politicians, <laughs> Mitt Romney. <laughs> Let's finish chanting. <clears throat> What's that? Yeah. Let's stand up. with infinite compassion illuminate this endless field. May Anne Hutchinson 
Teresa Hibbert, Andrea Kirsch, Scott Beveridge, Naomi Halliday, John Calderhead, Tracy Carroll, Saga Honga, Phil Hulboom, Dave Johnson, Bill Hume. Find healing and peace at this time of illness. For our great abiding friends and Dharma brothers and sisters, James Hillman, Jenna Morrison, Anthony Cooper, Rita Anderson, Chris Blahos, Jack Layton, Lynn St. John, Brad Dixon, Scott Walker, Brent Carroll, Sophia Barella, Vaclav Havel, Christopher Hitchens, Joseph Dunko, Miguel, Manisha and Heiko's baby girl, John Panagapka, Jamie Burnett, Scott Waterworth, and Mary Clement, who are passing from this world. They have taken a great leap. The light of this world has faded for them. They have gone into a vast silence. They are borne away by the great ocean of birth and death. May they, together with all beings, realize the end of suffering and the complete unfolding of their way. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. So thank you for coming. Good night. Please don't forget that uh, what we do here is supported by the Donna Box. So at the back of the room, uh, there's a box, and please give generously to help support our programs here. Sleep well. <laughs>